If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. We know not what we will say. We know not where we will go. We know not what we will do or be or do or do be do be do. Now, back in 1987, we used to be able to pick up a phone and like this all worked. But anyway, back in 1987. <laughs> oh. Hey, guys, welcome to Draftsman. My name is Stan Prokopenko. I'm Marshall Vandruff. And we have a really special guest today, Flint Dilly. We're going to be talking about gamifying your art education, how you can make it a little less painful. Yeah, and your art career, too. And career, and just lots of good advice about life as well. So, hi, Flint. Um, can you can you tell us, like, some hey, of the... How's it going? <laughs> good. Good, Flint, thanks. <laughs> oh, man, we, we even got our, intro. Our, uh, um, we got our we got awkward, our awkward intro, intro in there. Yay. Perfect. We're, this is the good one. Um, yeah, no, but let's keep it awkward. That's okay. You know, <laughs> that's, that's... That's, it wouldn't be draftsman if it wasn't awkward. So, Flint, can you... What are the some of the most... Uh, like, the projects that you are most proud of, the ones that you... Uh, are the most excited about uh, that you've worked on? I, well, you have to understand I'm old, so I've been designing games since the 80s, you know, and I mean, it's obviously fine. your first ones I was doing, you know, designing, you know, games with Gary Gygax, back, you know, back then. I did military simulations, a game called Line in the Sand I was thrilled about because it got me working for the actual military. Uh, that was cool. And uh, uh, science fiction games and yeah, those were board games and then graduated to computer games and probably done about 50 of them. The first one I did of note was the, the Strike series at EA, which, which went really well for us. The, uh, then did uh, uh, pretty much worked for, for everybody. You know, things that are, I don't even know what's recent anymore, but like console games did uh, Riddick, Butcher Bay, Dead to Rights, Uncharted, the first one, uh, Ghostbusters. Um, Diablo three, that was, that was a PC game technically, but it worked with Blizzard. And, um, after that went to Niantic and we did Ingress and then, yeah, Pokemon Go came out after that. Uh, and meanwhile, I was working on DARPA and gamifying, you know, science and engineering and, and things like that. So I, I, and I love, I love like all these kinds of projects, you know, and I, there are a million other things, but you know. You know, role-playing games, alternate reality games, sort of pretty pure strategy games, pick-a-path adventures, and then just flat-out, straight-out, you know, shooters. 
Nice. You know, and platformers and stuff like that. So I've done a lot of different kinds of games. Okay, cool. How do you describe what you do to someone who says, what do you do for a living? I'm a writer and a game designer. Um, you know, I, I don't really know what I'm going to do when I grow up, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's usually in that, in, you know, in those bandwidths. And I just don't see a lot of difference between writing and game design. To me, when you're writing, you know, a story, you're, it's a game you're playing with the reader, right? Where you set up a bunch of expectations and you try to fool them, but you can't do it too much. And that's yeah. just a game. And I tend to view the entire world as a game. So gamifying education is just another step. And I would argue that most education is a game. It's just badly designed and we can do better. And it's partly going to come from the instructors doing better and partly from the students trying to figure out how to motivate themselves. For our students, for our listeners, what I think the, the biggest thing that will help them is to, is to get them to be able to gamify the education in a way so that it helps them to make the whole process easier on them so they could get better habits and it's a little bit le there's less friction am i am i right that friction is a big part of uh, gamification well yeah i mean you know i mean because a good game has friction that's called the gameplay like you're shooting stuff or you're whatever but it's friction mm -hmm. you want and you desire and like not all conflict and challenge is negative yeah. You know, and what, what we're trying to eliminate in the world is the pointless, annoying, you know, unpredictable, non-productive challenge, right? You know, friction. I guess I'm talking about the friction that the user would have from putting the next quarter into the, into the machine. That you have to remove that friction, right? Yeah. That's all what, pretty much what gamification is? Well, well, what gamification really is, is in the game business, and this may be more technical than you want, but I'll just give you the real answer and then, you know, we can, we can mod it. Okay, the, the basically what, what gamification is about is about creating compulsion loops, okay? Okay. And a compulsion loop, the first one with the, the video games you don't remember that you used to, you put a quarter into at arcade. I but, and, you know, is you put, you, you, you know, it was, you put the quarter in, you'd hear a and then the game would start playing and, and you know, then, the, you know, the, the game was designed to last for 90 seconds and you threw in another quarter. And think about that in 1980s, you know, money. But anyway, um, and, you know, and you know, your friction was it was trying to defeat you. I mean, you know, the, the compulsion loop was you would have just enough progress and just enough success that you'd put the other quarter in. Okay. Uh, does, does that make sense? In other words, you know, you've got to a higher level. You know, there's a higher level. I mean, I, I threw $300 into uh, Galaga because I wanted to see what the challenge level um, birds looked like at level 17. $300 to see a slightly different color palette on, on you know, the, the, you know, the sprites. Okay. You know, and yeah. that wasn't really about seeing the sprites. It was about, that was a challenge. And that was where I said, I can quit this game when I hit that point. I think if I'm someone who doesn't know anything about gamification, I would still, I, I don't think I would still understand what the compulsion loop is. All right. So a, a modern compulsion loop, you know, there was a time when you would buy a game when I first started designing games. And the whole idea was you had to give the parents a dollar of entertainment for every, I mean, an hour of entertainment for every dollar they spent on the game. Because video games were perceived as babysitters. Okay? <laughs> then those kids grew up and they kept playing games. Okay? And, and the first designers 
you know, it came in and they viewed it as like it's me versus the players. And so I'm going to make everything insanely hard. And there was a lot of talk about it. I beat the game. Okay. The problem was, and this is, you know, when I started doing video games, is they were so damn hard, nobody finished the game. It's hard to sell a sequel when somebody didn't finish the last game. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I mean, the other pissed, they end up pissed off. I mean, you don't make movies where you can't see the third act of the movie. Mm-hmm. So we started, but there was a very subtle shift. And what, what shifted was, it, and there are metaphors probably, and I mean, in a- analogies probably in art. So what, what shifted was all of a sudden you got to give people their money's worth or they're not going to come buy the product again. Right. So you, you, you had other models where they finished the game and then it was what well, good, we'll sell them another sequel for 40 bucks. And that was the model. Mm-hmm. Then the model changed, you know, especially when you're working on mobile games, uh, you know, where you, you get them to, you get them in for free. And then you have a compulsion loop where then they buy like, you know, Pokemon, we were selling them Pokeballs, you know, stuff like that. Right. And, and, you know, so the, you have to, you then have a compulsion loop, which says, how do I get the person back into the game? And usually that's based on negative stuff like, you know, FOMA, like fear of missing out. Oh my God, there's a legendary out there. Or, oh, I'm not going to see this new thing. Or, oh, I'm going to miss my Warcraft raid or something like that. Or I'm going to look like stupid to my friends because I'm still sitting at level two and they've all finished the game. Okay. That was, that was, you know, an early compulsion loop. But now you look at the flow and games are very repetitive. So is the rest of your life. I mean, I perceive it as life really is a game. It's just you, a lot of it's not fun and the rules are really badly constructed. <laughs> I mean, school's a game, yeah. right? You, you, you think about it and, and, and that here we'll get, there's no compulsion loop. You show up, you get a syllabus. The teacher tells you what you're going to do. You meet the bosses. They're usually called tests. Or sometimes <laughs> you get the level bosses, which is the paper you have to turn in. Okay. And, you know, you get a good grade, that's an achievement unlocked, you know, and, and, and failure has consequences. So you, you figure out that dynamic. Success has rewards. Failure has consequences. You know, school is, is a badly designed game because you know, it, it's not fun and, you know, the teacher has all the control, right? You know, and, and so a lot of people talk about how do you change education to make it more like a, a like a massive multiplayer online game or you know and have a compulsion loop. Then I was working on a project for for an agency called DARPA, which is Defense Advanced Projects Research Agency about creating a gamified social network for scientists and engineers. They invented the internet. I mean, you, you DARPA has helped your life. It was a gamified social network for scientists and engineers to speed up innovation. And we came up with the propulsion loop and where, where gamification of anything useful in life starts is you are getting real-world improvements and results from playing the game. You really, in life, level up, okay? Yeah, and in the case of an artist, or you know, to the extent I've gamified writing, I have no art skills, okay? In the case of an artist, um, you know, it's, it's okay, I, you know, you, you have... Your main path, and there's part there. There, it's it's setting up a bunch of rewards, and and rewards come in two flavors. There are intrinsic rewards where you feel really good about. Oh my god, I just drew that. Oh, I took on this. I didn't think I could draw a Batman comic panel, but I actually did it. You know, I'm a fine artist. I'm usually doing 
weird abstract stuff, but I just did a Batman comic panel. It is, it is, you know, it's crafting, which is bringing up the finer parts of your skills and technique. And then uh, the flip side of it is, um, you know, uh, the extrinsic rewards are you get paid. Okay. You know, uh, you know, it's uh, the outside world acknowledging, or you get yeah. an award or you get a compliment from somebody whose opinion matters or, you know, you are featured on a, you know, on a website. I mean, you know, whatever the extrinsic reward is, but the extrinsic rewards are given to you from the outside. Intrinsics come from the inside and you need both. Right. That's why even in, in games, there's thing called peacocking, which is people will spend money in amazing amounts of time and effort <laughs> yeah. to get cooler clothing to wear yeah. around in, you know, shared areas of Warcraft. OK, you know, and, and <laughs> once you realize that, that people will do an amazing amount of work for nothing. Yeah. In other words, they're not getting an extrinsic reward. They're not getting paid. They're not getting whatever. They're doing it for themselves. Is Fortnite the best example of that? Uh, Fortnite is an excellent, they're all like that, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what the, the concern with games, and we're getting a little off topic with gamifying our, uh, you know, art education, mm -hmm. but, you know, the, the thing with games is how do you modify it? Because the dilemma is that at one level, if you let people buy stuff that's useful in the game, then you run into a phenomenon that's called pay to, uh, pay to win, and, you know, if you're in a shared world and somebody's spending more money than you are and so they have better stuff, that doesn't seem real fair. Okay. You know, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, it, it, they, they bought their way up there. Just kind of like, you know, somebody having a trust fund or something like that in life. You know, it, it's just like, that's not fair. Right. Um, and, and games have to keep at least the illusion of fairness. At the same time, people want to get paid. That's why Fortnite's problem was they didn't know how to monetize the game. Okay, and, you know, in other words, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to sell you really valuable things because then you're paying to win, which is cheating. And then, okay, can I sell you a better shirt? Okay, a better shirt. It doesn't change your gameplay. You just look cooler doing it. And people pay for that. <laughs> uh, same thing with League of Legends. But anyway, so if you're gamifying education, you know, and, you know, and, and, and I'll take analogies for what I do with myself and writing is... You have to, you have, you have a program and you decide what is leveling up. How do I know if I, if I've won or if I, you know, if I get somewhere. I mean, games, most games aren't about winning anymore, really. You have, you have sort of short-term victories, but they're about continuous ongoing play. And that's very much mm -hmm. like life and like leveling up your skills. Okay. So you, 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 yeah. if you reverse engineer it, you say, okay. I'm going to start scoring myself and measuring stuff. And, and a propulsion loop is that you're doing stuff that is either repetitive, it's called grinding. Every game has grinding because, you know, you, you can't possibly have enough content for players to be doing, you know, unique content all the time. And, and, and that, and, but life has grinding. When you're just simply, if you're a musician, you're practicing the guitar or with, you know, I get up and write for 20 minutes every day just as an, an exercise, kind of like stretching, like you're an athlete. You know, the, the stuff that comes out of that is every once in a while good, but mostly it's just getting my fingers going, my brain going and all that. What's the artist equivalent to that? And, but, and you, but you get a certain number of points, you know, think of it as you get point, you give yourself points for that. And there are all sorts of, you know, reward systems with Pomodoro systems, like you set it up and, you know, if you do it for 20 minutes, you know, you know, something smiles at you from your computer. 
Then you figure out extrinsically, what do I need to feel to feel like I am improving? And you know, that's the whole part of an education is one of the biggest thing you, you get is you get outside opinions and outside advice. You know, somebody, you know, that theoretically is objective looks at your work and said, this is good, this is good, this is good, now do this, right? Okay. And so that is a, that is a kind of gamification. I mean, and so all you're trying to do is how do you turn it into a propulsion loop so that people get up every day because you want to turn it into a habit. That's really what a compulsion loop is, is it's a habit, but it's an ongoing escalating habit. Uh, you know, and, and other, other disciplines are, you know, if you, if you work out every day, but what you want to do is you want to be able to run, you know, a thousand more yards, or you want to be able to lift 10 more pounds or whatever, that's a, compul- a propulsion loop. You see, you see what I'm saying? That, and, and over time, you realize, oh man, my arms are bigger. You know, I can lift more stuff, you know, and then it has a, it has a real life ramification in your world. And so how do you turn that into, you know, for art? Because, you know, a lot of the problems with art is just the discipline to do it. And if you're a writer, you don't want to stare at the blank page. So how do I reward myself? You know, and because, yeah, and the big reward is you get a job and somebody pays you to do it, or you get really good reviews, or you get an award, or, you know, whatever else. You know, my personal reward is, is, you know, like, you know, whenever I get a really hard project, you know, it's, it's, it's scary and you think I'm failing and this, this is, and then all of a sudden you have a breakthrough and it gets better and better. And if it actually ends up going platinum or is a successful game, then it's like, that's a huge extrinsic reward. And that's the big level up, not only in your own mind, but in the rest of the world, you were involved in this really successful project. And, and then there are other social benefits. Yeah. I want to stop us for a second. Sure. I know that you have more to say, but I just, the reason I want to stop is, is I want to make sure that I understand so far. Oh, you're, you, you have to stop me because I'm not making any sense. <laughs> you, you are. But I also have questions afterwards as well. Here's what I'm, I'm getting. A compulsion loop means something that you have to do. You feel like you have to do it. I've got to keep going on this. I've got to get up to another level. I'm afraid of something bad happening if I don't, and I'm seeking something good happening if I do. Yes. And so... I'm, I'm hearing two things about it. I understand the intrix, intrinsic and extrinsic rewards, but here's two things I'm thinking and trying to apply it to myself. Uh, one may not be that relevant to our audience. It's as a teacher to create really good compulsion loops for students so that they've got an easy structure to excel in. But then more directly for our audience and for myself is as a professional, as a person who's trying to do a job to create compulsion loops for myself so that I hardly even have to do anything except just give in to the compulsion, which is structured to make me want to achieve by running away from the pain and pursuing the good feelings. Am I onto this so far? Yes. I mean, and remember what we're going, a compulsion loop, and the the reason we wanted to change the term for DARPA, and I'm rethinking that for everything I design, it sounds like drug addiction. I mean, you're, it's a compulsion, like you have to do it. And that's part of it. But you want, it's propulsion in that you all of a sudden start noticing you're getting better and better. I'll give you an example. Yeah. Okay, we created a game called Ingress. It was the first thing I did you know, when we were at Niantic. 
And it was a game, you know, nobody, it was a game where you walked around in the real world. It was a geo-aware game, okay? And when we started doing it, nobody thought the players would walk around in the real world and play a game. They thought people want to sit on the couch and play a game. You know, and we can make all the arguments. I don't know. I went to a tennis court. I saw all sorts of people out in the real world playing a game. You know, that, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm buying that. But, you know, a lot of people weren't believers. What we discovered is we, you know, we put together this, you know, it, it was, it was, you know, you're walking around in the real world and you, you would, you know, conquer stuff. You'd make links between things. To do some things, you'd need other players. All of a sudden, players started teaming up with their friends and doing it. What we didn't see coming was that these two factions we had would turn into thousands of people and they would have their own club in their own city and, and have t-shirts. And I, I, it was stunning what happened, right? But, but then we started getting letters. We were inside of Google at this point, you know, and so, you know, our first you know, our first audience was, you know, Google, you know, executives and stuff and, and you know, engineers and things like that. But uh, um, when we let the game out in the wild, it really took off. And I mean, for, you know, you know, it was a very esoteric audience and all that stuff. But what happened is we had a, you know, fanatical players. And we started getting letters that said, man, I don't believe what this game's done for my life. I mean, I've now walked, you know, 750 miles. I've lost 15 pounds. I have a whole new set of friends. And we like the story because all the stuff I ignored in school is relevant to the story to help us play the game. I, I didn't care about history or codes or English or because we had an alternate reality game that went on top of it, right? And the point is, is all those people, okay, in their actual life, yes, they're playing a game, but in their actual life, they're getting fit, they're... they're making friends, they're really getting to know the world around them, and they're interested in academic stuff they didn't used to care about. That's a propulsion loop. Okay. That it leaves you better when you're done with it than when you started. A compulsion loop you know, rewards you and all that, yeah, but sometimes you're playing some game and the ones you're really hooked on, you feel kind of gross afterwards, like, oh, there's another day out of my life. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I, I beat, you know, the Spanklord boss on level 19. But, you know, it's like, what did I really accomplish? This is about actually accomplishing stuff. The <laughs> Spanklord boss. Oh, my God. Right. I, I just, that's just like a sample game that doesn't exist that I can use an example and like nobody will get upset about it because, you know, <laughs> I'm not bad mouthing anybody's game. That's great. So, you know, it, you know, you don't, don't get anything. A propulsion loop. Every little thing you do makes you a little bit better, changes some aspect of your life. So if you want to do some of it, you know, I would imagine with art, some of it's just grinding and just getting your technique better. Some of it is doing that piece you've always, you know, really wanted to do, but you're kind of afraid because you didn't want to fail at it. Some of it's doing another stab at something, doing one more version of it. Some of it is having other people react to you because the minute you make it social, and that's where everything turbocharges, okay? The minute you make it social and people have this spirit of what we call coopetition and it's competitive cooperation, and it's the best thing in the world that can happen to any kind of an artist. You know, it's it, you know, it like ultra evident with like, you know, the classic rock guys that my kids still know about. But what you'd see is all these guys were playing in the same clubs, and, you know, grew up in the same parts of England. They'd all be in bands together. You know, I, you know, I was reading about the first time, you know, the Pete Townsend ever saw Jimi Hendrix and he got, you know, he, you know, calls Eric Clapton and says, I hear this guy's real good. Let's go look at him. All these guys are hanging out together. 
And to this day, they're making music together. Except Jimi Hendrix, he died, so he's not making a lot of music. But he's released a lot of albums since then. But point being that when you activate your network, because I mean, what were, I was just reading a book about Caravaggio, right? His network was a bunch of priests and artists and, you know, and he was not a life, he didn't make a lot of life choices you would want to follow, but man, he was good. Okay. And he was highly connected into stuff, and he, but he was so good that like priests would hide him out because the police were always looking for him. You know, he had some anger management problems. But, you know, and like, but even with Leonardo and Michelangelo, those guys were well aware of each other and they were definitely competitors. And they look at each other's stuff and they, they wanted to be better than each other. And you tend to notice that this comes in groups. So what the social gaming part of it is, is finding that world where you are simultaneously competing with people and cooperating with them. You know, it's usually a kind of soft competition. It's not, you know, a zero-sum game where, like, if my friends' things do really well, that doesn't hurt me. And in, in some ways, it helps me, and then they help me out with my thing. And, if it, you know, if my thing does well, they just feel good about it. Yeah. this I'm taking notes like crazy yeah, here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Oddly enough, in my career, it, it was artists that helped me out a lot. Not helped me out, were just... People that went on the journey because I was in animation and I'd work with comic book guys, you know, games are full of artists. But like the earliest one, I talk about that and I, I did a book about the really years from 80, 83 to 87, you know, it's my animation career. And like, I got a lot of questions at Comic-Con about that stuff. And so I just, I decided to write it down one time so I wouldn't have to talk about it anymore. But of course, once you write a book, then you do nothing but talk about the book. So it didn't work that way, but it was, it was really fun to explore the, the mechanics of how life worked. And it starts out with a story where I was working with a story editor. An artist will get into the story in a second. A story editor named Steve Gerber, who created Howard the Duck. He was a comic book guy, but at that moment, he was the story editor on G.I. Joe, uh, yeah, which you can still see. I know I'm talking about old guy stuff, but I mean, you can still see G.I. Joe episodes and they still make toys. Okay. And, and uh, Steve was doing that. I was on, on a show called Transformers, and we were writing a movie that, in 1986. Um, it, you know, it's, it only works on steam-powered projectors. Sorry, the, the context you're missing is we were getting razzed for being old guys talking about stuff. Okay, so, but anyway, we were right now I was writing a Transformer movie, and we were trying to figure out how to kill this main Transformer guy named Optimus Prime, who we really liked, but... He'd been discontinued from the toy line, so we, we had to kill him in the movie. And, uh, and all of a sudden, this guy arrives for lunch. And he's a comic book artist who just moved to, to, uh, to uh, um, California from New York. Okay, you have to guess who it is, because you'll know who this guy is. So what happens is, uh, you know, and so, you know, he, we're telling him the problem we're working on. They're supposed to be going to lunch. He, but he's got a problem with his comic book, and he's doing a Batman miniseries. And he's got to have Batman fight Superman. And we were trying to figure out how to get Batman to fight Superman. You know, because I was just saying, it's, you know, Batman's got a four-second life expectancy. And he said, no, no, we're doing Superman like Fleischer Superman or like George Reeves. We're not doing him like Christopher Reeve. You can't run the planet around. So we solved both of those problems, which, you know, for anybody into comics or, or, or um, the animation and certainly, you know, major movies, they echo around in our culture now. One of them was, you know, Transformers, and the other one was, Frank's comic book was Dark Knight. 
and uh, uh, which really pretty much changed comic books you know, at, at a number of levels. He just drew them like, you know, Batman like nobody had before, and he wrote them like nobody had before, and he had a take on them nobody had before. And so Frank and I have collaborated through our entire careers. So I'm out in our, and we've never been credited in anything. We've never, like, received money for anything we did with each other. You know, he just makes me into characters, and, you know, and I make him into characters, you know. Uh, you know, it's like, he did a graphic novel later called 300. And if you look at the graphic novel, the, the, the narrator is from pictures he took of me back and we did a, a trip to Greece in 96. And, and, you know, and, and he dedicates the, the, or acknowledges my wife and I at the end of the book. In the movie, the character looks like I want to look. Scared in Dilius. Okay, he, the guy looks like I would optimally like to look. You know, he's been to the gym a few more times. But uh, um, point being, that's your network. And we went on 50 of these adventures together. You know, he was doing Sin City, and I was doing a game called Dead to Rights. And it started out, he was a huge Dashiell Hammett fan, and I was, a, we were both doing noir, basically. And, he, and, and, and I was a huge Raymond Chandler fan. And somewhere in the middle of it, it flipped. You know, and all of a sudden, he really started appreciating uh, Chandler, and, and my game basically turned into Red Harvest, uh, you know, which was a, a Dashiell Hammett book. Point is, that's, that's just your pure you know, social network propulsion loop. Nobody, you know, there was no, you know, I guess there was inter extrinsic rewards because I got to be made into characters and stuff, but it was just the thrill of doing it. And we both got so much better at what we were doing. Um, okay, so Flint, I, I want to I kind of step into the shoes of the listeners right now who are trying to understand how, what they can actually do now to gamify their education. And from, from what I heard you say is like, the reward you, you want to do the propulsion loop where the rewards are like your successes you're getting better and all that and you you ask someone for feedback and they say it's good but like what about when you're not good yet <laughs> right like what about when you draw something and it's kind of okay and you ask someone and they say uh that's not good like what does that do to your propulsion loop when okay. you keep asking people and everyone around you says, like, that's okay. You would not play a game if you won every time and you never got killed. You would stop playing. It would not yeah. be challenging. You have to hit that sweet spot right in between, you know, uh, you know between, you know, frustration and accomplishment. Okay? And you have to know you're strapped in for a long ride. In your own education, okay. you are like the game engineer here. You're the designer of the game. How do you do that so that it's a sweet spot and not so that you burn out because you're putting in so much effort. And because a lot of people ask us about how do I deal with burnout? The fastest way to change a game is to change your victory conditions. Okay. Okay. That's the most profound thing you can have. And the victory conditions are not only at the end of the game, but they are every step along the way. And the first thing you learn in game design is, you know, just give the player five easy wins. If I start playing a game and I get pounded, you know, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I die 50 times and I don't get through the tutorial and, <laughs> you know, and I end up in some, what's called a negative feedback loop, you know, right. I, I, I was play testing this game where like, if your guy gets shot, you know, he starts limping. Yeah. Well, first off, you know, you're doing something wrong when your guy gets shot. Now he's moving even more slowly and then he gets shots again. <laughs> he's moving even more slowly. So there's no way he can win. 
that's a negative feedback loop. And, so and you, you just do, can't you know, win. I, you know, <laughs> the, the part of the, yeah, part of the di- difference and the way to re envision educating yourself is, you know, in school, you give the player five easy wins. Okay. okay. In other words, yeah, you know, you, you go in and you don't get pounded. They can be procedural. This is not handing out participation trophies. Okay. I'm a huge enemy of that. Okay. You actually have to earn real trophies, you know, and, and that, that you take from, from athletics. But you can say, okay, we're going to start our routine. You know, I'm quite sure, you know, even Tom Brady, who gets real, you know, real trophies, now that he's coming off knee surgery, I'm sure he's throwing softly. I'm sure he's not getting sand, you know, slam blocked in practice by you know, some edge blitz. None of that's happening. He's getting easy wins. Just throw and complete the pass. You know what I mean? You know, and, and, and this is, the guy's already been to 10 Super Bowls. He doesn't, you know, it's not like he needs accomplishment. Point is, <laughs> he's somehow still driven. But where, where he's your model for this kind of stuff is... You know, that you look at his daily, yes, he works out maybe harder than anybody in the world and he's in his 40s and still winning, but, you know, is, is habits, okay? You get to habits and the first thing you have to do is you have a habit that in and of itself is kind of neutral, just, I mean, like every day I get up, the first thing I do is I write for 10 minutes. It's just journal entries. It's garbage. There's no rule on what I have to write, but I cannot stop writing for 10 minutes. That's just, I, you know, I'm not looking at a blank page. Most days, you know, a lot of days it's like, I don't know, it's another, you know, June gloom day in LA and it's nothing interesting. Some days something brilliant comes out because I write right after I went to sleep. And so it's like, you know, it's like whatever I was dreaming about. And it's like, there's some image that comes back and I do that. But I'm not putting pressure on myself to produce. And I'm sure as hell not writing something that anybody else in the world is going to see and judge. And if you're any kind of an artist, I believe you have your private world and your public world. And you be very careful about who you let into your public world. Now, when you're taking a class, the implicit deal is that you are letting other people into your public world. You mean your private world? Oh, no, your public world. In other words, no, in other words, your private world is what you do for yourself. You have no intention of ever showing to anybody. Okay. And if you should someday decide to do that, you'd probably edit it, you'd probably polish it, you'd, you'd you know, mount it properly, you'd do whatever. I'm giving art analogies. Remember, I'm not an artist, right? That's your private world. Then how are you deciding who you let into your public world? Isn't it public, like everybody, or, or are you still, even your public world is... If it's a class, okay, you have made a deal with the rest of the world. You're letting the teacher and, and depending on how the classes run, the rest of your students into your into your public world. That is your public world, right? Mm. Okay. Your private world stuff that you do where there is no obligation and you have to have this world for anybody to ever see it and you probably will never show it in its current form to anybody. Okay. It's a, I mean, it's what, I, and I hate the phrase, but it's a safe space to work. Yeah. Okay, I, when I write in my journal in the morning, I'm not writing it like someone's look over my shoulder because it is almost impossible to create when you imagine somebody looking over your shoulder, especially if it's a hostile audience. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, so your audience right now is you. And for your, your warm up, you're grinding. You are not judging yourself. You're just simply saying, I'm working on technique. I am simply building the habit of doing it. Like I would, you know, after 40 years of this, 
I'd have no idea what to do first thing in the morning if I didn't go down and write, you know, 10 minutes in my journal. I mean, and, and, and habits are the ultimate thing in a propulsion loop. Bad habits will destroy you. Good habits will make you. Can you gamify habit creation? Like, do you have any tips on that? Because I, I feel like... Yes. I feel like that's probably the most important thing. I, I mean, I, I'm not the expert here, but like, I feel like without those habits, like all of this just becomes 10 times harder. I totally agree. And basically, okay, so what's a habit? It's something you do over and over and over to the point you don't even know you're doing it. And it wouldn't occur to you not to do it. That's what I was just saying, you know, you know, is I started writing a journal because of some writing class I had in college, like sophomore year. I've written pretty much every day in the journal for the last, what's that, 50 years now? <laughs> Not that old, uh, 40 years, a long time. Okay, just the, the number of decades your students can't imagine. But understand, <laughs> the gamification is you're playing for endgame here. Okay, that's the first thing is you have to decide what you're playing for. What are your stakes? Everything I have to say is you're playing for endgame and you're doing this in your 60s and 70s and 80s and you don't retire because what would that mean? What am I going to do? Get up and not write some morning? Oh, I'm now retired. I'm not. I, I, that's a habit. <laughs> yeah. It's so ingrained in who I am. I just yeah. do that anyway. And I, if I would imagine artists should do, you start your day that way. You start it. It's very low risk, very low pressure. You're doing whatever the hell you want. And, and, but it, well, what it is, is because what happens with habits and how you create a habit, I think, is when you do it every day, first of all, the friction starts going away. You have the place you go to do it every day. Okay. Then you know where your paper is. Then you know where your pens are. Then you've carved out your workspace, which is often deceptively hard. And I'm sure much harder for an artist than a writer. Okay, you know, like my, my daughter, full disclosure here, my daughter's in art college, okay? You know, and, and you know, uh, you know I, I, was, I was telling, I, I was either telling you that or, or Marshall, somebody, but that place is like the closest thing to that education I've seen is another son, uh, son of a friend of mine is at the Air Force Academy, okay? And where, you know, his assignments are, okay, you're going to jump out of a plane at, you know, 10,000 feet. You're going to be on oxygen for the first 19 seconds, then you're going to want to pull your strip, you know, shoot. If you don't, you'll die. So pull the shoot. You know, that's, that's how he wakes up in the morning. <laughs> My daughter ends up probably with the artist equivalent of that because they have these crits and they're brutal, you know, and, you know, and, and, you know, because, yeah, at this particular place, I, I think they measure their success by the success of their students. And so if their students just aren't trained to be samurai, it's like samurai training. But that's what you have to think of yourself as doing, is you are training yourself to be a samurai if you're serious about the art. I mean, if you're just taking a class because you want to be able to doodle better, that's fine. That's, you know, then that's your victory condition and you're doing it. But if you're doing it like you want to do this in a career and you want to get serious about it, you're doing it every day. Okay? And then that's going to be spiced up with, with and, and you're, I mean, you know, Saturday and Sunday when you have nothing to deliver, you're doing it. Then you're going to have directed things that they do. And to this day, I will look, I have writing books that will just give me writing assignments. 15, you know, birds that start with C, stupid stuff. Or just <laughs> write about birds for 15 minutes. I've never thought once about birds. Interesting stuff comes out. You know, you know, deconstruct six syllogisms and turn them into enthemes. Oh, okay. You know, uh, you know, and, and, you know, that's kind of the rhetoric part of writing. But you want it, you... You, then you do some random exercise. Then you have 
Now you go to your public life. You have something that you perceive as being product that somebody will pay for. Okay? And, you know, and, and the simulation of that for education that's at is classes, and you should never stop taking classes. You know, I still teach classes at, at Cinema and Annenberg at USC, just simply because the students challenge me a lot of times more than my coworkers. Never stop learning stuff, right? You know, and, and, but you, you, have a, you have to have an assignment that has an, a, a, a name and will be judged. So you're going to do multiple things every day. The gamification is you're probably not losing at everything every day. And it's hard to lose on a journal entry or a sketch that you want to do. That's hard to do. How do you lose at that? I don't know. It, it seems like with the kind of questions we get all the time, it seems like people are losing on a daily basis. It's just, I don't know. As I said, let's talk about five easy wins. Okay. Yeah. Any game, I don't care if it's the most hardball, vicious, competitive game in the business gives you five easy wins in the tutorial at the beginning, or you won't keep playing the game. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the purpose of the educator and the person guiding the study is to, to tune it. So it's not a ramp, okay? You know, the difficulty ramp in a game doesn't just go straight up at 45 degrees. You go up here, then you may do this, and maybe you make it easier for a while so they have a sense of mastery. Then you crank it up a little bit. It's a roller coaster. And that is how you design a propulsion loop. In other words, you, you challenge people a little bit, then maybe you challenge them a lot, then, you know, have them get used to failure. Because, I mean, the entire point of education and of sports and of 90% of what I do in life is to learn how to lose. Okay? You know, I don't care who you are. You're going to lose a lot of games. I mean, I, if you're, you can be the best professional athlete in history. You know, Phil Mickelson, you know, hasn't always won the Masters. He's lost plenty of rounds. He's had plenty of crap holes. And it's learning how to be resilient and, cover, and recover from that. And understand that, that yeah. you're going to get better and there's something wrong if it comes too easily. Because the, the people who always win in Endgame are the people that had to work the hardest. Okay, and you're going to have, you know, yeah, you know, I mean, that's just then that's what you teach is is you teach, you know, but the, the, you you spice in easy wins, not participation trophies, but you're just saying we're not we're not gonna, you don't have to go kill yourself every time out you do a project. You do something, you have a little bit of success. The next assignment, if it's somebody you thinks it's struggling, give them something similar to what they had the success with. Mm. You know, if you're killing, you know, a, a level one goblin, give them a level one goblin again and get them used to the idea that you can win. Then when they start getting cocky, then you crank it up and you give them, you know, a level 25, you know, dragon, you know, waste them. And okay, now we're giving you a level two goblin. When it's your own education, you have to be able to identify when you need your win and go do something you're good at. And when you're getting too cocky and you need to go study some fundamentals and, and get better, right? When you're the teacher and you're leading the education, you're pretty much setting the difficulty curve. Okay, you know that, I mean, you know, when we're designing a game, we have a very good idea what the difficulty curve is. We can't know that. And when we tune a game, it's only our approximation of what a player will be able to do and like. But you do play test it and you do have people come in and you, you have a certain amount of reason to believe you're right or you're wrong, right? Um, and likewise, if you're looking at a student, you think they're losing and struggling, then it's your job as a teacher 
to figure out what what can you do to give them a win or give them their confidence back. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or you know, and and you basically that can just be a template. You just look at their stuff and you say, okay, they're coming to this with something. Okay, and and, and what what are they coming to this with, and how do I amplify that? Because remember, not everybody's going to end up being Van Gogh. Okay, but even Van Gogh's stuff looked pretty weird when he was alive. You know what I mean? You know, and and, and what? What are you laughing about? When he was alive, so it got good when he died. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, he, he got. People thought his stuff was a lot better after he died. Now we probably yeah. <laughs> want to time our, our career ramp better than he did. Okay, you know that wasn't that wasn't just a really great career ramp. <laughs> You know, likewise, yeah. <laughs> I think there's some people that get too much too fast. You know, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, posthumous is not when you want to be recognized. Yeah, it's better than not being recognized, but, you know, that depends on your belief in the afterlife. But, but my point being, you know, is, and sometimes somebody's biggest liabilities can be turned into their biggest asset. Yeah, I, I've heard, you know, stories that Gauguin had, like, vision problems, and that's why his colors are so weird. Well, I don't know, but it worked. <laughs> you know, and he had a lot of fun in the South Seas. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's figuring out what you want to be, you know what I mean? And, and there are a million different ways to be artists, and the whole journey, if you're a student, is to figure out what kind of artist you're going to be. I mean, you know, that the school my daughter goes to, okay, one guy is a really prominent comic artist came out of Walt Simonson came out of it. Shepard Ferry comes out of it. And the guy from Talking Heads comes out of it. That's really three different ways of using your art. And numerous other people who, you know, I'm not nearly sophisticated enough to know who they are. But the point is, mm-hmm. I mean, these are wildly different artists. And all of them, you know, and I won't say all of them will leave someone out of there, but tend to do stuff that I think I can do. I mean, my definition is if I think I can do it, it's not art. That is actually a really crappy definition, but it's because I have no skill, talent, or training in art. <laughs> so I can, I, I can believe that. Okay. And so, you know, you set your students on a path to succeed. And they may find they're really good at something totally different than what they went in to do. Okay. When I, went, I got to USC film school, Okay. You know, I, I, I show up, I, you know, an undergraduate degree in ancient history and classical rhetoric. I, you, know, you know, not that I didn't get trillions of job offers, but I decided I would go to grad school and went to SC Cinema, right? Okay. And the first thing that shows up is, is Tony Bill, who looks at our class and says, okay, if I come to this class and four more, uh, maybe one of you will sell one script, but I, you know, it's very unlikely statistically anything will happen. Okay, that, there's a really encouraging first lecture, but it totally depends on how you react to it. I remember that moment, and I was not that confident or cocky, but I remember looking around and saying, I wonder what these other people are going to be doing in four years. Okay, you know, I mean, just for some reason, that was my instinctual response. Like, okay, I'm selling something, but these poor people are going to have to figure out what their fallback is. Okay, and to some extent, you've, you've got to kind of have that attitude, right? You know, um, then you had guys, you know, like John Millius had show up and just made it seem so easy. And this guy wrote Dirty Harry and Apocalypse Now and stuff like that, you know. But I mean, you may, you know, I'm looking at it thinking, oh, yeah, I mean, he was really inspiring me. If I just treat myself like a samurai, I'll be able to write scripts. And like that sort of work. You figure out ways to motivate yourself. And what, what you want to do is lead students on a journey to what motivates them. And, and the gamification of that is 
In a modern game, you tend to play different classes of characters who have different techniques, different ways of playing, and you sort of find what you, what you are. That's not an old, like an old-time arcade game where everybody got the same stuff. You carve out your own path in Warcraft or even in, in League of Legends or Civilization. or You, know, you become a certain kind of player. You know, and even, even like you know, sports games, you know, I mean, if you, if you want to play football, it, you, know, you start with like, you know, your physiology and like what position can you play? You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, you can be small and you can be a great punter, you know, you, or you can be a scat back. You, can, you know, there are things you can do. But, but by and large, if you're uh, 385 pounds and 6'7", and you're probably playing, you know, offensive line. Okay, so, you know, back to, okay, I get to film school. It never in my entire life occurred to me. I don't know what I thought I was going to be writing, though I did write a sword and sorcery script, but it never occurred to me I was going to be writing animation. I happened to get scripts out there. I get the guy who created my first boss was the guy who created Scooby-Doo, right? And, you know, they, um, you know, they, they put me in, they, they liked the scripts, they put me in development, and I'm sitting there working on, you know, cartoons and realizing I'm like this and I'm good at it. And some part of my brain does this pretty effortlessly. I never thought I was going to be doing that. I thought I'd be writing, you know, important dramas. I don't know what I thought I was going to be doing, but I didn't think I was going to be doing car- Saturday morning cartoons. And I was perfectly happy doing it. And then you're sitting there, you had, now your way your network starts is my network started with that group of people. Okay, you know, with with those writers, and we all sort of matured together, and that went on for about a decade. Some people are still in that network, some socially, some professionally. All we're all sharing in the same world, right? That's your network. But then you touch these, the you know, masters. I mean, I, I you know, one day we were developing shows, you know, that may or may would probably wouldn't ever happen for for Saturday morning. And, and Joe, Joe Ruby was, was my boss. And Joe said, hey, I want you to meet Jack. You and Jack go in and just come up with some action show ideas. And Jack's this kind of old guy. He's actually about the age I am now, but he seemed impossibly old at the time. You know, I was like 26, 27. No, it's probably 27. Um, and uh, so I'm in there with Jack. We don't really know what to talk about, but we discovered we both really liked ancient mythology. So, by the way, your undergraduate irrelevant degree becomes, you know, ancient history made my career. Just flat out made it. Okay? And we'll find out why later on. But anyway, so I'm, you know, working with Jack, and he starts drawing Prometheus, and we start with, like, the gods, but he's doing these versions, and they look, I'm looking at it like, these look like comic book versions. These are amazing. Middle of the second week, to tell you how self-effacing this guy was, you know, this is a lot like, you know, when I, when I created Captain America, what I was trying to do, and I realized, this is Kirby. Oh, my God. I mean, Jack Kirby created all the Avengers, basically, except you know, Spider-Man, if you consider himself an Avenger, probably a couple other ones. Point is, he's in, like, his late 60s, still thrilled about, or mid, early 60s, you know, uh, you know, figure, you know, thrilled about what he was doing. He was excited to be working with some young punk. He didn't some have some bad attitude towards me. And if I could talk to him about ancient history and, and mythology, that was totally cool. Okay, that's playing for Endgame. Ignore the fact the stuff that he created in the 60s is the mainstream of pop culture in 2021. Yes, but I want to stop you. I want to stop you because I need to gather my thoughts. I feel like I'm getting a bucket of colored rocks and gems and minerals all being poured <laughs> out. And, and I'm, I'm taking notes 
to sort through it later, but I, I want to back up just to gather thoughts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The first thing you said is play for your end game. And what we're doing is, for whether for ourselves or designing this for collaborators and or, or students is to make it easy, to make it convenient, but not to make it too easy so that there's at least some challenge that makes us rise to an occasion. But as soon as we get discouraged, there's enough designed into this loop. The whole thing I'm getting out of this is to create habit. We design loops for ourselves and adjust them as we go. Is that is that where we're headed? Or is that, no, that isn't where we're headed. That's where we started. Right. And then we carried through to the, the fact that we may find a strength that we went in not even considering because we found that we feel better when we, when we indulge in this or we've already got this set of skills that can be applied to what I'm seeking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because so, so what you're saying, what's very game attic about it is that you have to learn your craft. And the game analogy would be just have to learn how to play the game. If it's a shooter, you got to learn how to shoot the gun. You got to learn how to reload. You got to, you know, all the physical stuff. And you have to keep getting better and better at that stuff. Okay. You cannot ignore your craft. You know, I, I was reading Eric Clapton's autobiography and he was talking, about, even at the height of my heroin addiction, I never let my craft go. So somehow he's sitting there, you're trying to figure out, you know, how to bend a string faster, you know, where with two, whatever he was trying to figure out he was doing. Okay. You, you, every day you have to work on your craft. That's grinding. And you, and, and, and you, you know, and you have to try to figure out what your weaknesses are, but that's not the first thing you do in the morning. You simply have the habit of getting to your workplace and working. Then you have your craft where you're just doing exercises to just get a little bit better at something you want to buff slightly. That's grinding. Okay. And you do that every day. Then you have your, your quests and that, you know, a quest is I want to accomplish this. Okay, and, and it might be for a student, I just want to get through this class, get an A in this class, and have f four paintings at the end of it that were deemed of a successful, of acceptable quality. Is there any timeline for, like, a, the perfect duration for a quest? Like, how long should quests be? Are they months? Are they years? Are they weeks? Oh, no, well, okay, I, I, never, I never thought of that before. Okay, let me play with that. Okay, the way quests work... Yeah, it's, it's tough if you're not a gamer, but you, you have golden path quests, okay? Mm -hmm. And the golden path is to the end of the narrative part of the game, right? And those are, your, those are your major quests, and you must do those so you don't get to the end of the game. Mm -hmm. That's not terribly different than 
getting a degree, an education degree where, you know, you have to get to your bachelor's degree, right? You know, when I was in college, I mean, I didn't even think about what I wanted to major in or I was the most unfocused person ever. That might come as a surprise to you after this conversation. But, you know, I, I've, until I got a scary letter my junior year telling me there, that if I did not declare a major, I was going to be you know, thrown out of the university. And it's like, what? God, nobody told me that. You know, they probably did <laughs> freshman year and I ignored them, right? Yeah, freshman orientation. It never occurred to me. I don't know. So I, for the one and only time, I went to the counseling center and I said, I don't know. You know, I mean, here's what I've taken. What, what degree can I get with this? And they looked at it and they said, well, we can't, it, you're, not, you're not really qualified for a single major, but you can double major in history and rhetoric. You kind of, I can add the credits up that way. Oh, okay. That's what I'm doing. And never thought about it again, took the classes that, you know, that, and I said, okay, well, so I don't get any more scary letters. What do I have to do? So I signed up for those classes and I had the golden path. But, but I mean, all my entire college was side quest. I'm not sure I recommend this for real people, but it was great for me. Okay. And side quests are things that are optional to do. For right? real? You don't recommend it for real people? <laughs> yeah, no. Just, just I mean, for yeah, you. I know. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, everybody's. Everybody's story is, you know, totally anomalous, you know? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's just a series of anomalies. But no, I mean, most people like to be focused and know what they're majoring in and what they want to do and stuff like that. <laughs> okay. this, was, this was one of those decades that, like, you were not alive for, but it was the 70s, right? That was like, we had, like, electricity and stuff then. But, you know, I mean, you know, um, and it was kind of fashionable. I mean, Berkeley in, like, the early 70s, I mean, you know, having no idea where you're going in life was not unique to me. You know, it did like the whole culture was kind of there. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, and, and, you know, but nevertheless, what that really meant is I just taken classes that were things that interest me and it happened to add up to that. But then I went to a, then all of a sudden now I really had to write a thesis and I had to get a little serious and I had to take some focused classes, but I was good with that because I was taking focused classes and things I'd enjoyed. Okay, and then the rigor of the thesis, that was, that was the, you know, the game end boss. There were a bunch of level bosses and stuff like that in there, but that was it. You had to get past that, you had to do that right, and, and you know, I knew that mattered. For somebody who just never, you know, I, I just paid almost no attention to grades as long as I wasn't flunking out. The one piece of advice, you know, I got out of college and like had no plans for the rest of my life. I'm sitting around the house about six months later. I asked my father, you know, what, what do you think I ought to do? You know, because I'd never really thought about what I wanted to do when I got out of college. It just happened, you know. And, and he looked at me and he said, well, I think you're going to do something that doesn't exist now. So you're just going to have to prepare yourself. And what a fascinating piece of advice. You know, operationally, functionally, absolutely useless at that moment. But it, it, it gave me the freedom to say, well, good, I'll get serious and go to film school. You know, uh, you know, because I thought, you know, he's going to say, oh, you got to go to law school or something like that. And like, oh, okay. Um, and, you know, point is, you can only see so far out in your career. You have an idea where you want to go, but you can only see so far out. And you've got to be over, you know, I mean, what, what if I was sitting there, you know, it's spring quarter my, of my senior year and two things happened in the same week. And that is I played my first real video game, which is a thing called Space Wars, which is a prototype that was in the student union at Berkeley the, for the, the couple of guy from there in Stanford had made. And I saw Star Wars. Okay. That's, 
you know, like the final week of my, my of college, right? That set me on a path, which would be, you know, I'm still on right now, but that none of that stuff existed before then. I can see why your dad would, would peg you that way, is that you, yeah, uh, you're extreme on the divergent side of let's try this, let's try this, yeah. let's go this, let's, let's uh, chase this. And I, I observed that even the first time we spoke, Flint, is that uh, you are not afraid to pick up every rock and look what's underneath it and, uh, and you don't seem like you are really that strong on design it for the end game. I would say for people like me, there are people who have to figure that out and design it for the end game, but that's what strategy is, okay? Strategy is not a list of moves you're going to make. Maybe you plan the first 10 moves of your game, but mm -hmm. strategy is, is, there's a really great definition for that I, that I will botch that, you, that I learned when I was doing stuff for the Pentagon, but that basically it's, it's a, a mosaic of intentions that is, is constantly changing with a picture of an outcome. You can't know. You can't have gone into World War II and seen what was going to happen, but you did go in there with, here's what I think we're going to have to do, and, and we're going to do 50 things, and you know, when something works, we're going to do more of it. When it doesn't work, we're going to do less of it. But we're going to be in a situation where we can adapt and win, okay? You know, it's, it's it, you know, the other thing is that, that people I know, it's, it's OODA loops. It's, this is for fighter pilots, but it works in life. And OODA is observe, orient, decide, act. And so, it, you know, what I knew is for Endgame, I had to play, I had to, I had to learn certain basics, okay, that then that you would be able to transport whether you're working on a movie or you're working on a game or you're working on a novel or you're working on a nonfiction book, whatever. You had to learn those basics. And they don't change. They're pretty classical. You know, I mean, Aristotle figured them out two centuries, you know, millennia ago. It's, it's not, that stuff's non-volatile. Then you have to look, look around the world. But that's what I'm saying. You have, you know, think of your, yourself as, as a living organic entity and not like something out of a spreadsheet, right? And your friends will, you, when you have a network, your friends are kind of your feelers and they point you to stuff. That's why network's incredibly important. Okay. There's what you're basically interested in, you know, weird, you know, doors open up and opportunities come up. I, I remember when, one time when I was in this period that led me to ask my father, what do you think I ought to do? I remember walking by a game store in Monterey, California and saying, you know, if I could do anything, I would design these Avalon Hill games, but they didn't have game design programs there. I thought you had to be some general or something to design them. I didn't, I, you know, I had no idea what I was done, but I loved playing them and it never occurred to me you could make a living, you know, designing games. You know, I figured that was something people did on the side, which was pretty much true at that moment. Okay. But I mean, I knew I want to do that. So cut to you know, four years later, now here's the big clunker in anybody's backstory. And whenever, you know, in your career, we all have clunkers in our backstory because it's, in other words, it's a freaky thing that happens that can't be replicated. And that is, I had this goofy agent who wasn't really an agent, but he would take my stuff around and yeah, got me my first, you know, uh, you know, my first job. But 
He said one day, he said, you want to go meet a guy named Gary Gygax? Okay, Gary Gygax is the guy that created Dungeons and Dragons. It's like, you're kidding. You know Gary Gygax? He said, no, I bet a friend of mine's working for him. And you can go meet him at the uh, book fair. Okay, so we went to the, uh, you know, met at the book fair in Anaheim. You know, it's down, exactly enough where BlizzCon happens now, where probably the biggest, you know, certainly Warcraft convention happens. And, and there, he's sitting on the top of a tower because TSR would, you know, was a publishing company and they had this, they'd build a medieval castle with a tower. And so, you, you know, it's scaffolding and, you know, it's a set. It wasn't a real tower. And, and we're sitting up there. I just met the guy, liked him. We talked for like four hours on top of the tower. I mean, he didn't want to go out and like, you know, sell books. And, and that started my game design career. Okay. I, I can't tell people, yeah, go do that with your career, that somebody's going you know, to, your agent, goofy agent who's not an agent is going to call you up and say you want to meet Gary Gygax, <laughs> and you're going to meet him, talk to him for four hours, and it changes your life. That's, you can't recommend that to people because it doesn't happen, but the equivalent will happen to them. Right. And you have to just be out there and around and constantly do stuff. But at that point, I, I had to have sh scripts I could show him. You know, I had to have, you had to have some reason I to believe I could do this stuff. But, you know, and that's why I said, totally by chance, just because I wanted to, I was writing a sword sorcery script in film school. This was not a respectable script to be writing. You were supposed to be writing an important social drama. It's like now. And, and when your script is called Swords and Daggers, that's not, I mean, what my screenwriting teacher who thought I could write, but just thought this is the most frivolous bozo I've ever met in my life, did say when he evaluated, said, you know, the, you know, points to another student, this is the, the best, most sophisticated script, this is all this, and Flint's is the one that's going to sell. And it never did sell, but it was what Gary and I based our work off of. Yes, and you respond to the currents that you can't predict. Yes, but you do know that there are boxes you can check. I had to get an agent, right? Mm-hmm. And the truth is, my story was more complex than that. I, I actually did, out of film school, I won a screenwriting contest. And so I got an agent at a very reputable agency. This guy was utterly worthless and never sold anything. However, he introduced yeah. me to a guy <laughs> who ended up very important later in my life, an animator. Um, and that, the animator introduced me to my agent, who wasn't really an agent, who ended up being the most probably important seminal person in my career, you know, as far as, as, you know, and, but he's just ridiculous. He was like this sort of magical, you know, you know, alternate reality character that walked into my life. And those things come into your life if you're around for it. Yeah. These bizarre people where you don't know, you never really ever know who they are, but they change your life. I mean, that the life imitates fiction if you're open to it. But I, I'm not telling you about the 5,000 rejections and the 200 query letters I set out on my book, and then probably 30 people wanted to read it, and all of them rejected it, and I still have the squid sitting on my shelf out here, you know, yeah. to keep me honest. Yeah, in a story, the first one of those rejections could be interesting, but then the other ones you have to leave out of the story until you get a turning point, which is where you got introduced to someone where your career changed. Yes, exactly. I'm an opposite temperament of you in a way is that you are really divergent. I feel a compulsion toward convergence, which is to figure where we're going. Uh, and the first, you said the first thing is to play for your in game and develop habit 
that you make convenient, don't make it too easy, don't make it too hard. But you also said that that was the first thing. Did you have a, a second thing in mind that we haven't extracted out of that, that cause effect line? The first thing, begin with your end game and design your course. Was there, were you headed toward a second point that was a big point? These, these are, I, I, yeah, as I said, I'm nonlinear, so maybe I was having a second point, but let me try to focus this a little bit. I'll go to Leonardo da Vinci. Remember his thing about the blot in the diagram where he was talking about how, you know, because he was, was a very scientific kind of guy, right, on one hand, yeah. but he was mm -hmm. talking about he got his inspiration for looking at dirty walls and, and yeah. you know, yeah. because Stains of in walls, epithemia right. and peridolea. You'd see mm -hmm. shapes. Remember he talked about that? Yes, I do. And, and so he'd see like an angel in the dirty wall. And then he'd have to figure out how to compose it and how to put it into painting and all that. And so if you pay attention to the rational and just let, let patterns form in your mind, and at the same time, you are paying attention to the rational. Because remember, the hidden stuff underneath all of what appears to be chaos from me is, I actually did take SATs. I actually did get into an actual college. You know, I actually, you know, did go to a real <laughs> film school. You know, I actually did go get an agent afterwards because I knew that that was a box you had to check. It was the wrong agent. Well, or maybe not. Maybe, you know, and, and it took me a long time to get my career started. It was like six years between undergraduate and when I was getting paid to be a writer. Okay, that's a long time. I had all sorts of Hollywood guerrilla jobs and stuff like that in the meantime. But, you know, uh, you know so, I mean, there, you know, so... The other thing is, is I, you know, I had a certain amount of tenacity and a certain amount of uh, willingness to get 200 rejections for my book and just keep rolling and say, oh, I'll turn it into a screenplay. Maybe that'll sell. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, a certain amount of these, you just have to remain optimism, uh, optimistic and upbeat because you are going to have a lot of failure. But that's what I'm saying. One of the things you have to teach people is you're going to lose and you're super, you're, your, your super skill may be something you don't discover for a long time. In other words, we have right. our, our talents and our skills that we know we have. Yeah. Then there's the hidden stuff. Like you have hidden superpowers. You know what I mean? And, you know, I, you know, and, and, you know, your hidden superpowers, sometimes they're like you're, you're dealing with yourself, right? You know, so, I mean, you don't know what your superpower is, right? You know what you can do effortlessly and rely on yourself to get up and do every day. What I didn't know is that what underpinned me in all the game stuff and why Gary wanted to work with me and, and the game stuff went well is my secret power is math. Okay, you know, that I didn't see, we knew it was there, right? You know, I mean, you know, okay, I knew it from the SATs. I knew that I always did math. I always knew I was a, a really good gamer. But on paper, I was flunking out of algebra in high school. If yeah. the algebra teacher had bothered to see what I was doing after school and I'm playing Panzer Blitz trying to figure out that I have an elite tank column that's crossing a river with terrain effects, you know, and, um, with, with air cover and, and, yeah, and against an entrenched, you know, you know, SS, you know, elite SS division uh, who had been degraded, you know, through air power. And was able to do in my head the algebra there and figure out what, what that die roll odds were going to be and whether I was willing to take that chance. Or in, because this attack was really a feint that I was drawing his stuff off because I was trying to go down the left. If that same math teacher that was failing him in algebra knew that I was doing that after school, 
there probably would have, would have been a different math outcome. But they didn't. I had no idea what algebra was. I did know how to put two opposite, you know, incredibly complex equations on opposite sides of a, of a combat matrix and, and know pretty much what I wanted to do. And it was almost intuitive. Well, I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know why am I able to just effortlessly do certain things in games that, and all that. Well, that's because you have that, that power. You know what I mean? You'll discover stuff in yourself you didn't know you had. When I'm, when I'm writing talking mouse movies, okay, I, I watch no more cartoons than anybody else who was a kid. You know, I'd see Roadrunner and Coyote and all that. I have no idea where that skill came from other than it just probably got grafted from my grandmother who used to tell me bedtime stories. And the way her brain worked, it was this free association, but it was one massive Rube Goldberg puzzle, uh, and that's what a cartoon is. I mean, you know, like everybody else that ever told me a bedtime story, just, you know, told me, you know, some story everybody knew, and, you know, we'd have all the endings, or I'd ask about stuff, or I'd demand more, or whatever. But she would just go in, it started out with Mrs. O'Leary, we were living in Chicago, so it was the, the Chicago Fire, a cow kicked over a lantern, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Start out with that, and you would end up on the moon and, you know, through these things. And she effortlessly composed this stuff. And now, yeah. did I figure that out because it was genetic in me that I was doing it? Or did she train me how to do it when she was telling me bedtime stories? I don't know, but somehow 30 years later, or 25 years later, I'm able to write cartoons. Where'd that skill come from? That's what I'm saying. If, you, if you're any kind of an artist, I mean, this isn't about me, this is about any of your artists. If you're any kind of an artist, you, you're going to find stuff you didn't know was there, but you don't find it if you don't keep doing it. And that's the Picasso argument, is you must keep producing stuff. Lucky stuff will not happen to you if you don't work. So on one hand, when we're saying, you know, when I'm looking at this nonlinear guy, I'm just like, hey man, let's go. Well, yeah, at a certain point, if you look at the, at the, the diagram underneath it, yes, I did go to film school. Yes, I did go get an agent. Yes, I did all this stuff. The point of what I'm saying is, okay, you have a strategy. You have some idea where you want to end up. And it may be just a, a fantastical vision and you think about it, but just walk yourself through the decades, okay? You know, and then, and then you have, you, you drift around, you try different stuff and do, you know, just do everything you can and you find out, oh, I'm kind of good at this. You find out you have skills you didn't know you have. You also have interests you didn't know you have. Also, the world changes and whole industries come into being that, you, that didn't exist before. Or they, they morph into something. I mean, you know, because I was designing board games because you couldn't tell stories, on, you know, in computer games until, you know, really late on. But when computer games came along and you, you had, you know, CD-ROMs and you could actually, you know, tell stories on them, well, that changed everything. You know what I mean? But then yeah. the screenwriting skill I developed, you know, then paid off in the game skill. That, and, and that's what I'm saying. You just, you just have to keep doing stuff, keep trying stuff, know you're going to fail. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, and that, you know, that's what I'm saying. That's what, you, what we, do you have to bring a little sports into arts? You, you realize if you got in base one time in three in baseball, you go to the Hall of Fame. Okay, well, what about those other two times you didn't get on base or those nine times when you're going through a slump? People have to, they have to expect they're going to be in slumps. And I don't know anybody that, I mean, I, I go in slumps all the time. It's just how you deal with them. And that's what I'm saying about strategy. That's encouraging. That reminds 
uh, the importance of process, uh, the importance of openness, uh, the, the and the importance of persistence. Yeah. That we this has been a theme yes. that has come up over and over, that if a person waits it out and continues being ready, they will get their opportunity. But that, that was the inspirational stuff that John Milius said after Tony Bill had been in telling us none of us were going to make it. Milius said, there's one attribute you have to have. It's great to have talent and all that, but you have to have tenacity. Yeah. You have to just stay in there. And that is 100% true. Because I don't care if you have your big break, 10 minutes, you know, that you have some student that does their first painting and, and the Louvre calls them up and, you know, and they're doing openings. Okay, you know, opening just with their material. You better know what your move's going to be after you bomb. And how do you get up and how do you dust yourself off and what's the next thing? And you better be doing three projects at the same time. One project, at least one project, is an actual paying project. Okay, that, you know, is something you're doing with, uh, you know, a boss. That's where you want to go to and somebody who you know, is judgmental and critical and collaborative and all that good stuff. You want to be doing one project that's just, you know, that's just uh, your long bomb project, which if it succeeds, it fundamentally changes your life, but it'll probably <laughs> fail. And then you probably wanted to be doing other ones that are just little things you're doing because you're helping a friend of yours or it's some project you just, you know, you, you're not going to feel right about the world until you just scratch that itch or whatever. You know, or, or, you know, but, it, you know, a lot of times it's like a little paying project, but that's where you, you pick up skills. That's grinding. So you're grinding, you're scrimmaging, and, and you're, you know, and you're, you know, aspiring and, and, and pushing yourself all at the same time. But you have to do all those three th things at any period of your life. You have at least three projects going on. Okay. I want to get that. But, but, but the grind is for money. What's the scrimmage for? I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't know sports terms well enough. <laughs> a grind is you're just practicing your your penciling technique. You're you're practicing your line drawing. You're practicing your your painting technique, and it in itself doesn't get you anything. It just means when you do the real thing, you're going to be better at it. Okay. You know, if I'm doing style studies when I'm writing, and I'm saying, okay, I want to write this like Hemingway. And so I read a bunch of Hemingway and I try to Hemingwayify just the random stuff I'm doing. I'm just trying to learn another voice. Okay. You know, you know what I mean? But I'm not actually going to sell that to anybody. That's just practice. Yeah. That, you know, it's developing a skill that will pay off later on. Okay. You know, when I'm, when I'm saying, you know, my, my screenlighting format sucks. I, you know, how do I, how do I like just buff my format? You know, I, I, I don't like reading my format, right? Okay, move on to scrimmage. Scrimmage is an actual project then. Well, I, I, you know, a scrimmage is just that, that to me is school. There's no real stakes. It doesn't go in the record book or anything, but you are really competing over something and there really is an outcome. Okay. Okay. And what was the third thing? Was it, you said to aspire? Well, the third thing is you go just do, the, you know, start, you work on and put time into the outrageous thing you think you really want to be doing. Notice the key word here is think. That's the long bomb? Yeah, it's a long bomb. That, okay, when I wrote a novel right out of college, okay, I didn't take a novel writing course. I did later. I, you know, I didn't take any novel writing courses. I hadn't, like, didn't know whether I could write a novel. I didn't, you know, and everybody says, well, write a short story first. Well, I didn't. I wanted to write a novel. 
and you just go do that knowing there's an extremely high chance of failure. If you succeed, it's huge. Now, I'm not sure my life would be better now if I'd actually sold my first novel, but at the time, it sure seemed like it, okay? And, you know, it was depressing, but, but what, it, what it did, even though it was a fail from the point of view, I didn't sell it, nobody ever read it, and my son, you know, read it and has been mocking me ever since, it doesn't matter. It convinced me I actually could do that. I never, I never later on was intimidated by a large piece of work. Okay. Even though it was a fail. Okay, I've got I've got one more question about this. These these three categories you've got, uh, one of them, and it doesn't make any difference which one. One of them should pay money, whether you're making your money by doing a grind, whether you're making yes. your money by doing a scrimmage, or whether you're making your money because somebody is fo uh, fronting you the money to do something really big. Uh, the idea is that a couple of these don't need to make money, so that there's there's less stakes. There's fewer stakes in it. Is that correct? Well, and there, yeah, there, there, there are two kinds of not making money. There is not making money because I'm, I'm practicing my craft and I don't expect to be paid for that. You know, you ever heard of like a guitar player running through scales? Okay, nobody's going to purchase that. It sounds ugly. However, that makes their fingers faster. So when they want to do something that people may actually want to listen to, they can accomplish it, right? It's practice. It's drills. It's you know, it's, it's, it's going to the gym one more time. Okay. You got to go to the gym a lot of times before, you know, you're really going to be able to compete anywhere. You know, you're, 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 you know, and that's, I'm, I'm trying to mix the metaphors for whatever people get, you know, you're going to, yeah. you're going to be doing, losing a lot in, in any game you play. If, if you're not getting killed a lot, you're, you know, you're probably playing a game that's too easy for you. Try a different difficulty level because you're not going to advance if it's not hard. If it's too hard, you're not going to want to play it. So you try to tune it to what you are, right? Yeah. You know, and that's why you, you ramp the games up. But, but you, it, you know, you want to, you want, and the other thing too is you don't want to, and this is my, my problem is I don't want to vapor lock on one project. That's when bad stuff happens. And so if you have, a, you know, at least one other thing that you're doing that you're directing this project, right? Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, this is your project. You own it. Nobody can tell you what to do. It's just yours. And that's the long bomb. Yeah, that's the big one that can bomb. That's the long bomb usually. Okay. Yeah. Or you know, alternately, if you're doing a really high profile, high prestige, monstrous project in the real world, then you want, may want to figure out, well, what are the, what's the little thing for me to do? Like right now, I'm doing arguably the most ambitious project I've ever done in my life professionally for a real company, you know, that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's huge. And it's, 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 it's a perfect team. It's like a, a perfect challenging project does nothing but challenge me every day. However, on Saturday, I'm doing a second play test of a role-playing game I designed for no particular reason during COVID. But I found, you know, players like to play it. And it's something that's been sort of, you know, on my back since the 90s and i you know i cleaned out all my storage and i found this document i said i gotta finish this thing there's just some itch to finish it do i see any path to that being a billion dollar project no but it could and the good indication i'm getting is people keep showing up at our play test and wanting to do it more that's 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 great because you know that's and that's your scrimmage yeah that's my scrimmage yeah that's it's, it's just my little 
you know, my, uh, you know, my little heart project. That's another way you can look at it. But the scrimmage part of it is that I'm actually exposing it to other people and they're actually coming and playing. If nobody would come back and they're saying, oh, that's just real good. No, sorry, I can't make it on Saturday. I might know the thing's really a turd and they're being nice to me. Okay, but that's it's just some some little thing I'm doing with no real expectation attached to it. It's just fun. I mean, if you're not having fun doing your stuff, I mean, you got to find out what what you have fun with. I have fun doing a role playing game and, and projects like that usually end up with your Robin Hood, you know, team that works with you on it. You know, people start drawing stuff. People start, you know, you know helping you with with tables. People come and play test. People write fiction based on the world, you know, stuff like that. That's cool. And that's the modern world. That's what I'm saying. That's just a network. You know, sometimes projects just build their own network and you got this whole conga line of people that kind of come with you on the project. That's, that's fun. If I'm wrapping it up, what I would say is this. I mean, if there were 10 easy steps to having a successful career, we'd all be doing that and I'd be writing that book. And, and Why don't all you? That. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that memoir I wrote about the 80s is a great book for somebody just... Uh, you know, you know, sitting in film school or getting out of undergraduate, and it's the story of what happened to me. Now, everything that happened to me was just unique in funny ways because, you know, uh, you know, uh, but nevertheless, everybody's story is unique. I mean, you know, if, if, it, if it goes on to be good, it's unique. Even when it goes to be bad, it's unique, mm -hmm. huh. you know, and so they sound like improbable stories, but you stick around long enough and you do enough stuff and that stuff will start happening to you. What I'm saying is that at a grand strategic level, okay, let's, I'll, I'll go to military for this. We won't go to sports, but, but you'll, you'll get this. Okay, grand strategic is the massive decisions of your life that affect your whole life. Okay, you know, and you, know, you can't know where you're going to end up. You can't even know what the world's going to be like. Two years ago, we didn't think we'd be coming out of being locked down for a year, right? Yeah. But... You can have a grand strategic vision of, say, be, of saying, this is approximately what I want my life to feel like. Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. At least have the, do the thought experiment. Okay? And, and what that tends to dictate is very practical policies for your life. Like, for instance, I knew it would be an extremely bad idea for me to get married, much less have children, until you know, I, uh, I felt stable in my career. Yeah. I was married when I was 38 years old. That was a decision to make because I saw that people who got married, you know, at young ages found themselves needing money, getting distracted, not being able to be, you know, fanatical about what you're doing. And you have to be a fanatical and a fanatic in certain parts of your career. Some people made it work and some people, their wife was their partner and it worked. That was not going to be my plan. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I was not going to marry a wife who was like my work partner. I mean, like, you know, I, you know they, I just sort of knew that. Those are grand strategic decisions. Okay. I also knew you got to be smart about money. What, what, ends your, what ends your career when you have to start doing work you shouldn't be doing because you got to pay the bills? I'm not saying that's never happened to me. Okay. But, you know, I, you know, I, was dealt a fairly good hand, you know, with, with money. Okay. You know, that was just it. But I, there were certain decisions that I made along the way. I'm still in the same house I bought in 1985, you know, and, and it's worked out really well and it's been, you know, fixed and modified and buffed, you know, a hundred times since then. But nevertheless, 
you know, I didn't get involved in that game, you know, and I didn't want to run up a bunch of bills and, and obligations that I couldn't meet. You know, I, I'm financially unbelievably boring because when your whole career is a big risk, you don't need to pile some other risk on top of it. So that's just math. You know, you just have to say, if, you're, if you are going to take a big risk in one area of your life, I suggest not taking them in other areas of your life. Hmm. Okay, that's just my opinion. But I mean, I, I think I could put that on a combat results table and be pretty much borne out. You choose your risks. You choose your risks. So that's at a grand strategic level. Some people just get that when they buy a pack. They just have morality or they have, you know, whatever. You get that and don't even have to think about it. You're just doing, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, when you think about it, things like morality and manners and things like that are just algorithms for social intelligence and long-term intelligence. Hmm. You know, they also are nice if you just have them. But, but you know, that's, you know, I mean, manners just, how many problems do you not get into if you just have good manners? <laughs> you know, and you just don't do crappy stuff. And you, in fact, do good things and you write thank you notes and you do stuff yeah. like that. That pays off and you don't even know it. But once again, if that's a habit, you don't even know you're doing it. And I'm not saying I'm by, by far not the poster child for that, but I understand, you know, that, that unless you're a one in a million outlier with shockingly great social skills, it's pretty good just to stick to normal protocol unless there's a good reason not to. That's a strategic decision you make in life, or a grand strategic decision. You know, strategic decisions are more like, okay, am I going to buy an expensive house? No. You know, am I, am I going to, you know, do I really need that Aston Martin this week, even though, you know, I got a good check? No, I don't think so. I think that I know where they're going to be rainy days and we'll save for that. You know what I mean? You know, am I going to become a heroin addict? No, that might not be a good idea. You know, it's expensive. It's distracting. You know, I'm not going to do that. However... You know, you look at like, you know, Keith Richard worked for him until it didn't. Eric Clapton got his uh, skills up. Is that ever a strategic decision? Like, should I become a heroin addict now? Hmm, let me see. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll do it later. <laughs> you know, then there become tactical and operational decisions underneath that. Okay, you know, that's the way military stuff is. It goes grand strategic, strategic, tactical, and operational, then tactical, then, yeah, there are different flavors in between. But it's a way to think about life, you know, because when you're planning huge campaigns, which would be your career, military is not a bad place to look at because that's kind of what they have to do. Okay. You know, and then, and then where, where we're talking about the, gr that the tactical stuff is the grinding. It's the day in, day out of what yeah. you do. And the more you do it and the more frequently and the more predictably you do it, the more it will get to be a habit. And then you don't have to think about it because the great thing about a habit is it's, it's just there. You clean off your RAM. You don't have to, you know, that's just a subroutine that's invisibly running in your life. That's why you want to make good habit. Mm. The tactical stuff is, is the grind. Is, the, is there a, an analogy for the operational stuff? I don't really know the difference between tactical and operational. Oh, oh, oh yeah. In the real world, yeah, tactical stuff, that's where like the soldiers actually out there, you know, they're actually fighting. Operational is ba beans, band-aids, and bullets. Operational is where's your money coming from? Uh -huh. Where are your essential systems coming from? Where are you going to be living? What kind of car are you driving? How are you paying for the gas? What kind of gas are you putting in your car? What kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's just the flat out, you know, tactical realities of your life. Because you can have this, you know, and it's also who's your agent going to be? You know, to some extent, what's your network? Yeah, I got a lawyer. 
you know, the stuff that, that you know, you, you, yeah. when you need it, you really need it and you do need it and you have to get it. That's operational. Right. It's just practical stuff. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. Thank you. That's helpful. That, I, I, I Makes sense. I've heard those terms used, but only had a vague idea of them. Yeah. Flint, it was great to, it, it, this was great to be a student and my mind has been racing. It's also been <laughs> nice to not be the teacher. I have written down so much and it's been a workout to find <laughs> form in it, but that's what I'm going to do later yeah. is to take the chaos of <laughs> all of this right. and take an hour and a half yeah. to find the four minute to satisfy my own uh, love of convergence. But this was a bucket of, this was several buckets worth of gemstones. Oh, oh all right. One last thing. Okay. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm totally nonlinear. So, I have to figure out ways to compensate for it. Like, I can usually answer a question if you ask me, like, you ask me what operational means. I can give you a pretty good answer to it, right? Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, you sort of got what I meant by it, right? Yeah, no. Okay. The, the thing I do, now, different brains have to do different things, but the thing I do is I have an endless set of templates, okay? And templates are usually really formulaic. If it's a story, plot, character, style, theme, melody, message, and delivery. If it's a you know character bio, it's like you know fifty questions about that character. If it's a you know if it's a game, it's like different aspects, like you know the compulsion loop, you know phase, you know introduction, what's leveling, all that. Mm -hmm. There then templates are nets, and when you have chaotic ideas flying around, then you go into fisherman mode and you make nets. Yeah, and you uh, put them in there. And the thing I do most effortlessly is make templates systems. Yeah, or alternately, you know, flow charts. You generate a lot of fish, too. Yeah. You ge I generate a lot of fish, but, but you only catch them just by yeah, building yeah. nets. Because there's no point in generating a fish if, like, you know, you don't catch it. That's an interesting analogy. That's, that's nice. You see, it, it's, it's, a, it's a net to catch the stuff. Because some people have, like, one idea, and they don't need any of that, but if it's a really good idea, they don't need the second idea. Yeah. You can go a whole career to, with one idea and you do it really well, right? Well, don't you have to have ideas within the idea to make it all work? And, like, you don't just have, like, one idea and then it's like, boom, your life is built around it. I suppose, but, I mean, you know, there was one guy I worked with who, he was really into dinosaurs. He had 1,500 dinosaurs in his house. <laughs> wow. He wrote all the dinosaur episodes of Transformers. House. He wrote a bunch of other dinosaurs. He was extremely talented stuff and he, a guy and he did a lot of stuff other than that. But the point is, whenever you wanted a dinosaur thing, you went to him. And there's enough dinosaur desire out there in the universe. He's always got something yeah, to do. Great. And you can be, have yeah. that career. And I mean, because that's a person that is, at a, you know, he's still alive, so he's not at Endgame yet, but he's still made it a long time. And that's what I'm saying. Yep, you just have to know who you are. Yeah, I have a bunch of you know you know chaotic ideas that I have to net, but I, I have to figure out how do you turn that into making a living. Mm. Yeah, so I guess you could formulate your life around one single project that you just like keep expanding, and it's just like the biggest project. This dinosaurs yeah. is the project, but yeah, I guess most of us, most artists, don't do that. Most artists are either freelancers or they they work for some company and they have projects that last a certain amount of time and they'll move from project to project. Which is why I suggest 
that while they're doing that, they have their own project they're working on. Yeah. That's a strategy that do yeah. doesn't care about, you know, what agent, what arbitrary thing they're getting hired to do. Because, I mean, you know, a lot of my work is, is, you know, working on, you know, famous franchises. And the project just comes up and it's like, oh, I'm doing Batman. Okay. You know, and... Um, and fortunately, a gift I've had that's worked for me a lot of times is I can get almost interested in almost anything for long enough to do a project. Flint diversifies. Well, I, I mean, but, you know, the phone rings and, it, you know, hey, you want to do Spank Man? I, I guess. <laughs> you know, I hey, Spank Lord sounds real good to me this week. <laughs> Maybe there's something, you know, Spank Lords can be good. Okay, you know, I'll do, I'll do Spank Lords, you know, and... And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but usually I can get into it enough that, you know, we can see whether Spank Lords is going to work or not, because just often enough it works. What anybody can do is we all have enough free time in our lives. You can have your own project that's just yours that nobody can take away, no license or nobody goes out of business and you can't do your project anymore and all that. Once again, in the op operational practical thing is, make sure the legalities of it and nobody steals it from you. Thank you, Flint. Yeah, thank you.